Well, good morning to you all, and uh, welcome again to our worship service. It's been uh, such an encouragement to my heart to be able to lift up these songs of praise uh, with you all. And we want to did want to thank you for uh, your prayers for this uh, missionary uh, relief effort. We wanted to uh, give you the opportunity, as Gary said, to give to the relief efforts in Haiti, but to do so in a uniquely uh, Christian way. Uh, all of your contributions uh, to the special offering will be going uh, specifically to a Christian missionary effort um, in the middle of that crisis and uh, to an um, organization that we uh, we know and we trust, and so if uh, this is on your heart to give, we do want to encourage you, and if, if you didn't get a chance to write a check this morning, uh, we will be uh, taking contributions after service as well, and you can actually um, give uh, any contributions to uh, um, uh, Jin uh, Huang, who is here, and Jin, could you just raise your hand for a second, just for guys who don't know you, and uh, you can talk to Jin, and uh we want to thank you for your faithfulness um, to uh, that opportunity. Um, we do want to welcome you to this Sunday. It is a special Sunday with uh, the singles uh, on retreat, and we just wanted to take this opportunity to um, especially focus on and minister to the families of our church. We know that there are singles uh, with us this morning, and we do hope that all that we say and all that we teach will be profitable to you and be a blessing to you as well, but we did want to take this opportunity to especially highlight the families of our church and really make an effort to encourage your hearts and to minister to you uh, where you are. Uh, we don't have this opportunity often. I think um, I've enjoyed and been so blessed by our transition to two services as a church, and yet probably the thing I miss the most is just the opportunity that we've had as families to uh, gather together around God's Word and to specifically make application to uh, what we're experiencing in our marriages and in our parenting. And as you know, uh, this is a, a great challenge and a great um, great uh, opportunity for us uh, to uh, grow in our Christian lives in regards to our families. And so we did want to take this morning to uh, highlight the Word of God as it relates to our uh, families and um, as I thought about our approach this time, I was looking forward to it just these last number of uh, days and weeks. Um, ever since we put this on the calendar, I was really um, just excited about this time and really desiring that the Lord would give us uh, a great time of encouragement together and that the families of our church uh, would be encouraged and that they would be strengthened. And really, as I thought about how to approach this time, I I feel that the best way that we can encourage the families of our church is not by teaching uh, new and novel uh, techniques for marriage or for parenting. It's not in teaching some uh, new paradigms or uh, new um, approaches to the parenting task, but it really is through engaging in the ministry of reminder. The ministry of reminder. Um, I really believe the best way that we can encourage the families of our church is not by teaching you new and novel things, but it's really in reminding you of the old truths that you already know and you already believe. Um, this is the ministry Peter engaged in in 2 Peter 1.12. He said, 
Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. And again, in 2 Peter 3, he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Uh, Many times as husbands and as wives and as parents, fathers and mothers, what we need is not to learn um, new ways of approaching life, but what we need is reminders in the here and now, in the specific struggles that we're facing right this week. We need to be reminded of the old and the basic truths that we already know and we already believe. And it never gets old because the while God's truth doesn't change, and while the gospel doesn't change, and while biblical truth doesn't change, we are always changing, right? I mean, our lives are always changing. Our marriages are always changing. Your, your spouse is always changing. Your children are always changing. I looked at my son this week, and I, I just did a double take, and I, I said, when did you get so big? And he said, I don't know. And I was like, well, we'll stop because it's getting out of hand. Um, our lives are always changing. Circumstances are, are always different. And what we need is in every new circumstance and in every new season of life, we need to be reminded of the old biblical truths that we hold so dear. So that while the truth of God doesn't change, that we make new and fresh application of that truth into the situations that we face. I think this is why, no matter how many times I go to weddings, and no matter how many times I hear Ephesians 5 read at weddings, and no matter how many times I see a couple make a vow, and I've been to a lot of weddings, and I've been to a lot of weddings weddings even this last year, no matter how many times I go to weddings, it never gets old for me. I'm always convicted. I'm always encouraged. I'm always inspired. I'm always um, encouraged by the reading of God's word and the teaching of God's word. Why? It's not because I haven't seen it before, but it's because my marriage has changed and my relationship with my wife is different after 13 years than it is and it was back 10 years ago. And I need to hear that same basic truths again in the situation that I'm facing right now. And so this morning, I really don't want to teach you anything new. But I do want to remind you of something that is very old. And I want you to see this old, old truth in a fresh and a new way. Maybe in a way you've never seen before. This morning, I want to remind you of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of the simplest truth in the Bible, that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I believe that no matter where you are in your Christian life, no matter where you are in your family life, no matter where you are in your parenting right now, that you need to hear this truth this morning. You need to hear it again.
in a fresh and a new way, you need to be reminded that if you're a believer in Christ, that God loves you. That he loves you personally. That he loves you passionately. That he loves you unconditionally. And that his love is a faithful love. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. That he's with you. You need that truth. This morning. This week. I need this truth. This morning. And this week. And I believe that there's nothing better that I can do to encourage the families of our church than by reminding you of the love of God. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 1. And if you're not familiar with Hosea, you can find it by looking to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and then flipping a number of books back. Or you could just take it the easy way and go to the beginning and look at the page numbers in your table of contents. And that's probably the smarter way to do it, get you there quicker. But this morning, I want us to look at a story which communicates God's undying love for his people. This is a story which communicates God's undying love for his people. And it's a story that points to God's love for us in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about the fact that Many of your problems in life come from the fact that you don't have an adequate understanding of God's love for you. Have you ever thought about the fact that many of our struggles, many of our concerns, many of our difficulties in life come from the fact that we are not living in the light of God's love on a daily basis? Maybe you come from a family culture that was very performance-oriented. You were judged on the basis of your performance. Your parents loved you more if you performed well and loved you less when you performed not as well. And you transferred that to your relationship with God. And you you feel that God is always disappointed in you because you don't measure up to his standards because you're constantly failing him. And you feel that when you're doing well spiritually, that man, he really loves me now. But when you're doing poorly spiritually, that man, he, his love for me has just hit, hit the bottom. Or maybe you've always been an independent person. And in your heart, there's a self-sufficiency and you feel like, gosh, I just don't really need God's love. I mean, his love is nice, it's good, but it's a little bit optional. I can get by without it. I don't really need to be loved. I can live this life on my own. I can live the Christian life by myself. And God's love is not really a a necessary part of your life. It's not something that you cling to and you hold dear. Maybe like me, you have a conception that God loves everyone in the world except for me. You have sort of the Charlie Brown complex. And everyone else can kick the ball, and it's fine. But some reason, when I kick the ball, the ball disappears, and I land on my back. And, man, everyone else, God 
seems to love them and bless them, but for me, nothing seems to go my way. And I'm the one exception to his love. Or maybe you have a purely scholastic view of the love of God. I mean, you've dissected the love of God. You've exegeted the love of God. You've analyzed the love of God. You've studied the verses and cross-referenced the love of God. But you haven't experienced the love of God in your heart. It's not something that's real to you. You're not tasting of it. It's not something that transforms your life. And as a result, your Christian life is dull and joyless. Pastor James said last week, and I agree with him, that most of our problems come from the fact that we really don't believe in the love of God. And I would take it a step further by saying that I believe that many of our problems in marriage and in parenting come from an inadequate understanding of God's love for us. If you think about it, whatever dynamic you are experiencing in your relationship with God will be the same dynamic that you impart to your spouse and your children. If you believe that God's love for you is a dry and joyless love and he's aloof and distant and doesn't really care so much about how you're doing, that's exactly how you're going to act toward your spouse and toward your children. If you believe that God's love for you is performance-based and that it's always fluctuating on the basis of how well you're doing, then that's exactly how you're going to love your wife or your husband and your children. If you believe that God is constantly criticizing you, He's constantly disappointed in you, He's constantly pointing out your faults, that's exactly what you're going to do to your spouse and your children. In family, all the heart issues of life come out. You can't hide what's going on in your heart in your family. And whatever you're experiencing in your relationship with God on a daily basis will be exactly the same dynamic you impart to your family. And I experienced this in my own family life these last few years. Um, For those of you who got my Christmas card, let me just assure you that was probably the one second in all 365 days of the year that we, all six of us had our acts together and we looked like we have it all together, and I believe that picture was photoshopped and airbrushed, and um, the other 365 days of the year, we're just a normal family, just like your family. We have our flaws and our struggles, and uh, one of the things I've wrestled with over the years is basically, um, for years I believe I was a legalistic dad to my children. Basically, my love for my children was performance-based. I, I loved them based upon their behavior, based upon their achievements. Um, if they were good, I was happy with them, and if they were bad, I was mad at them. And that's basically how it went. My correction of their behavior was harsh. It lacked grace, and it lacked mercy. 
And the truth was that I knew how to schedule my children and I knew how to organize them and I knew how to discipline them, but I didn't know how to have a relationship with them. Because love and legalism, they really don't mix well together. And at some point, I think it was a year and a half ago, I began to become very discouraged about this because I saw, I looked down the line, I looked years from now at where this was going, if my pattern of life continued. And I saw that, you know, when they're 10 and when they're 5, they're, they have nowhere to go. They'll stay with me in my home. But when they're 30 or when they're 40, they're going to wake up one day and they're going to realize, you know, Dad, he, he didn't really love us. He didn't have a relationship with us. He did these things, but we don't have a relationship. And I saw that was where my, my parenting was going, but the truth was I didn't know how to change because when I looked at my relationship with God, I basically saw that my Heavenly Father was a legalistic dad. I felt that he loved me when I was good. And then when I was bad, he was mad at me. I saw a dad in heaven who judged me based on my productivity and my performance. And so my life was constantly being driven to work harder and to never live up. But I never felt like I got to the point where, gosh, he would now accept me. And he would love me. I saw a dad in heaven who organized me, who set my priorities, who planned my life, but who didn't really want a relationship with me. He didn't really want to talk to me, and he didn't really want me to talk to him. He just wanted me to behave. And until my view of my Heavenly Father changed, my parenting of my children could not change. Until I came to a right understanding of God's love and not just analyzed it, but experienced it in my own heart, I could not impart to my children a love that was unconditional and that was rooted in grace. And that's why I believe that if you're a husband or a father, husband or father or a wife or a mother this morning, that you need to hear of God's love. Because your family culture will not change until you understand the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Hosea chapter 1. This is a story of God's amazing love for us. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, the scripture reads that when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. If you want to know what God is trying to say in this verse, all you got to see is the word that he repeats three times in verse 2. It's not a pretty word and it's not a G-rated word. It is the word whoredom. 
the NSB translation has the word harlotry, and other translations have the word adultery. Take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, the land commits great whoredom. The first thing we notice in this beginning of the story is that God tells Hosea to marry a woman, and the woman that he marries is going to be a whore. She's going to be a harlot. She's going to be an adulteress. The woman that he's going to marry is going to have adulterous relationships with other men. She's going to run after other lovers. She's going to spurn Hosea's love. She's going to break his heart. She's going to wound him as no other person in this world can wound him. She's going to be unfaithful to him. Already in the very opening of the story, it's, it's a bizarre story. I think if a movie opened with this type of scenario, we would protest. We would say, that's too much. That's unbelievable. What? You're telling this righteous man, this prophet of God, this man who loves God, this man who had a long and extended ministry for God for approximately 50 years, you're telling this great spiritual man to go marry a whore? And that's exactly what God tells Hosea to do. He says, when you get married, Hosea, I don't want you to find a Proverbs 31 woman. I don't want you to find a woman who's going to bless you all the days of your life. I want you to find a whore. And I want you to marry her. And she's not just going to cheat on you once, Hosea. She's going to have multiple men in her life. She's going to be unfaithful time and time and time again. And Hosea, I want you to love this woman. You're not going to divorce her when she's unfaithful to you. You're not going to leave her. You're not going to forsake her. You're going to love her. You're going to stay with her. You're going to remain faithful to her. You're going to pursue her. You're going to be committed to her, but she is not committed to you. If that wasn't devastating enough, you'll notice in verse 2 that God says, not only is your wife going to be a whore, but she's going to bear you children of whoredom. As if having your wife be unfaithful to you is not enough, God says to Hosea, The children that you're going to raise in your home, the children that you're going to be a father to, they're going to be children fathered by other men. Hosea, your children are going to bear the physical resemblance of your wife's lovers. But you're going to stay. As much as that breaks your heart, As much as that rips your feelings in two, you're going to stay. You're going to be faithful. You're going to raise those children. God tells Hosea to marry this type of woman. And so the story goes in verse 3. That so he went and took Gomer 
the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. There's three children in chapter 1 that are born to Gomer. There's a son, then there's a daughter, then there's another son. Of these three children, only the first son is specifically called Hosea's. You'll notice in verse 3 that she bore him a son. And it seems at this point in their marriage, they were living happily together. They were being faithful to one another. And so the first son is fathered by Hosea. But after that specific statement in verse 3, there's no such reference when it comes to the second or third child. The second child's name is Loruhama, which means no mercy. God says, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. And the third child is named Loamai, a name that means not my people. And God says, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Why is God telling us this story? Why is this a story that Israel needed to hear back in the Old Testament? And why is this a story that we need to hear as the New Testament church? Three lessons I want to draw from the story of Hosea. Lesson number one, our relationship with God is like a marriage. Our relationship with God is like a marriage. You see, there's a reason why God told Hosea, he didn't just say, you know, I want you to be friends with an adulterous woman. Right? I don't want you to just have an adulterous woman in your ch- your congregation. Or I don't just want you to be neighbors with an adulterous woman. But he said, go and marry Gomer. Marry her. And the reason why God told Hosea that he wanted him to marry Gomer is because no other relationship could adequately picture the passionate, intimate love of God for his people than the picture of marriage. According to the Bible, God's relationship with his people is not just like a king's relationship with his servants. It's not just like a shepherd's relationship with his sheep. And it's not just like a father's relationship with his children. It is also like a husband's relationship with his beloved wife. Our relationship with God is like a marriage. And if you haven't come to grips with this, if you haven't understood this, if you don't think of the church as being the bride of Christ. They'll never come to grips with God's love for you until this picture is in your heart. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, God said, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. In Jeremiah 2.2, God said to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, one of the most graphic and heart-wrenching chapters in all the Bible, God says this to Israel, 
Verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adored you. I put ornaments and bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And verse 13 says, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. God says to Israel, you know what I see when I look at you? I don't just see sheep in need of a shepherd. I don't just see children in need of a father. I don't just see subjects in need of a king. I see that you are my bride. You are my beloved wife that I've committed myself to. And husbands, I just ask you to think of the highest passion, the highest joy, the greatest feeling that you have ever felt for your wife. I ask you to go back to the day of your marriage when the doors open and your bride walked down the aisle and the thrill and the joy and the exuberance that was in your heart as you saw your beloved bride walk down the aisle and just think that the greatest passion and love that you have ever had for your wife is just a faint glimmer of the glorious love of God for his people. He says, you know what my love is like? It's like a husband who passionately loves his wife. And if you just think this is an Old Testament picture, we go to the New Testament and we see the exact same thing. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loves his church as a husband loves his bride. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with word. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer and to be committed to Gomer because marriage is the only picture that can describe the intensity and the intimacy and the passion and the transcendent love that God has for his people. And if you haven't grasped that, and I press you on this, because I don't just want you to understand this, but you need to experience it. You need to taste of it in your heart. God's love is not something out there that you need to analyze and exegete and observe, but it's like a tidal wave that comes into your life and you need to let it sweep you up and take you away. Because who on earth in this world loves like this? Who on earth in this world loves an adulterous woman? What kind of a husband will have his wife cheat on him with multiple men multiple times and bear him children of harlotry and still say, I am committed to you and I will be faithful to you and I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I still love you. God says, you know who loves like that? I do. I love you like that.
And you know what's going to happen if you really taste of this love that God has for you in Christ? Is other people's opinions are going to become so much less important to you. You know, think about it. What happens when you live with a spouse who really, 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 really loves you? Who just thinks the world of you? What happens when you live with a wife, husbands, and every day she says, you're just the manliest man that ever was a man. I mean, you just are the man. I mean, I just, I just adore you. I'm crazy about you. What happens, wives, when you live with a husband who says, you're just, you're the most gorgeous woman ever to walk the face of this earth. I have eyes only for you. What happens when you live with a spouse like that? Is you know what happens is other people's opinions become less important. It doesn't matter what you think of my haircut. If my wife thinks it's the bomb, then I'm I feel pretty good. Wives, it doesn't matter what other people think of your hairstyle. If your husband says that's the most wow I'm, knocks me out. You're good. Who cares what? Other people think. When your spouse loves you and cherishes you and thinks the world of you and rejoices over you, what other people think becomes so much less important. Why? Because your spouse knows you. Your spouse knows you better than anyone else does. And if your spouse says you're the greatest and he or she knows all your flaws, then, wow, I'm loved. Can anything match that? You know what God says to us in his word? He says, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. I know you better than anyone in this world knows you. I know your most intimate details of your heart. I know the hidden intentions of what goes on in your heart and your mind. I know all your motives. I know all your sins. I know all your failures. I know all your shortcomings. But you know what? In Christ, I'm delighted with you. And I love you. Not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done. I've taken his righteousness and put it in your place. And when I see you, I see the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why I rejoice over you. If you taste of that love, what will it matter what other people say? What other people think? Because if the one who who knows us the most says he loves us and he's pleased with us, then what does it matter? what other men say. The first lesson we learn from the story is that our relationship with God is like a marriage. There's a second lesson we learn from the story. Lesson number two is that our sin against God is worse than we think it is. Our sin against God is worse than we think it is. I'll just forewarn you for a moment that When I studied this truth, it was a little bit depressing to me, and it may be a little bit depressing to you. 
And if you get a little bit depressed, that's okay. That means you're starting to come to terms with your sin. Think about the picture of marriage for a moment. Let me ask you this question. Who is the person in your life who can bring you the most joy? Who can thrill your heart more than any other person in this world? Who can bring you the greatest satisfaction more than any other earthly person in this world? And I think all of you would say, it's my spouse. It's my husband or my wife. And I'll ask you the flip side. Who is the person in your life who can hurt you the most? Who is the person in your life who can break your heart? Who is the person in your life who can devastate you and make your life a a taste of hell on earth more than any other person in this world? Who is the person that if your relationship's strained that you feel like life can't go on and life can't move on? Who is the person who can wound you the deepest? And husbands and wives, wouldn't you say that the person who can hurt me the most in my life is my spouse? In the 13 years that Mina and I have been married, we've had our ups and our downs in marriage, and we can say that we've learned no one can bless each other No one can bless me more than Mina. And no one can hurt me more than Mina. And no one can bless Mina more than me. And no one can hurt her more than me. Marriage is not just a relationship of intimacy. It's also a relationship of vulnerability. Where you open up your heart up to your spouse. And you're open to be wounded. And to be hurt. If we understand this picture... We come to grips with this fact that our sin against God is worse than we think it is. It's worse than we think it is. Because you know what God describes in the book of Hosea that our sin against him is like? It's not just that we're careless or we're not living up to all these standards. It's not just that we're slipping up and that we're doing things that we shouldn't do, what he says in the book of Hosea is, you know what your sin is really like? It is like a wife who is unfaithful to her husband and who runs after other lovers. It is like adultery. It is spiritual adultery. At the heart of your sin, God would teach us in Hosea, is that in your heart, You don't treasure me above everything else in your life. In your heart, you don't delight in me more than anything else in your life. I am not the center of your affections. I am not the uppermost in your priorities. I am not the center of your life. The reason why you lie is because you love yourself more than you love me. The reason why you steal or cheat is because You love riches more than you love me. The reason why you're unkind or angry is because you love ease more than you love me. The reason why you're upset and you're complaining is because you love your circumstances more than you love me. What he would show us in this parable of Hosea and Gomer is that our sin is worse than we think it is. 
It's not just isolated incidents of failed and lapsed behavior. It is that at the heart, we have given our heart to other lovers. And we have run after them. And we have pursued them. And all of these expressions of sinfulness in our lives are, they're the outcome, they're the manifestation of our heart idolatry, of treasuring other things above the one who loves us the most. And what God would say in this, in this book is, I'm your husband. Is it not my right to be loved more than any other lover? Is it not part of our relationship that you have me in the uppermost of your affections? Is it not inherent in marriage that I am the priority in your life? Who goes to a wedding and when the husband vows to a wife that I will be faithful to you and love you above all other women in this life and the wife pledges that I will love you above all other men in this life, who looks at that and says, oh, these guys are just so self-centered. Are you serious? They're actually asking each other to love each other more than everyone else in this world. Man, that's just so demanding. And we would all say, no, in marriage, that's the beauty of marriage, is that a husband loves a wife more than any other woman in this world, and that a wife loves a husband more than any other man in this world. And God says in the first commandment, what he's essentially saying is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And what he means is to Israel, I am your husband. I am the one who loves you the most. I am the one who has promised to provide for you, protect you, sustain you. I am the one who has promised to love you. And I alone can bring satisfaction and joy to your heart. And so as part of this marriage You are to have no other gods before me. You are to love me supremely above anything else in this life, anything else in this world. And when Israel failed to do that, what God said is that, you know what your sin is like, O Israel? It's not just that you're doing these things wrong. It is that you and your heart, you have given your heart to other lovers. You love other things more than you love me. You're looking to other things and you are saying, this will give me satisfaction and this will give me joy and this will give me meaning and this will give me identity. This will thrill my heart. And you have turned away from the husband who loves you to run after other lovers. What God would say to us from this passage is that our sin is worse than we think it is. Our sin runs deeper than we think it does. Our sin is more grievous to the heart of God than we think it is. The core issues of all these symptoms that come out is more deep-seated than we think it is. And what he would say to us in this book is, you have more lovers than you think you do. 
You're not just a one-time adulteress who has one other lover besides your husband, but you're like Gomer. You have many of them. And when life gets rough and when life gets difficult, you run to your lover's arms instead of into my arms. You run to wealth instead of to me. You run to your career rather than to me. You run to your family rather than to me. You even run to food rather than to me. You run to athletics rather than to me. You run to your artistic achievements rather than to me. You run to your education. You run to your prestige. You run to your promotions. You have so many lovers. So many other gods. And you go to these lovers and you say, you will save me. You will rejoice my heart. You will bring meaning to my heart. You will satisfy my soul. When I am your husband and I'm the only one who can satisfy you. In the New Testament, James 4.4 used these words to describe the church's sin. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I, told, I, I warned you at the beginning, the second lesson, it was going to be a little depressing. To see our sin, that it's more serious than we think it is, is not easy. These uh, past few weeks, uh, Pastor James has been taking our leaders' care group through the book, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And I've enjoyed uh, Tim Keller's ministry, and almost every time I listen to him, I'm very encouraged, and I want to rejoice, and I'm filled with joy. And But this one book that James had us read, I read through it all, and at the end of it, I got very depressed. Because he goes through the number of different idols that men have in our day. And there are things like, they're good things that we turn into ultimate things. There are things like money and success and career, romantic love, family, sex, children, politics. And the thesis of this book is that we take these good things and we make them into ultimate things and we say to them, you will be the center of my life and you will give my life meaning and satisfaction. And we turn them into idols. And after reading this book, I got, um, I became depressed because it wasn't just one chapter that was convicting, it was every single one of them. It wasn't just one of these idols I felt like I had in my heart, it was every single one of these idols. And even after chapter 6 or chapter 7 of this book, I felt like I could write my own next 10 chapters of additional idols that I have in my heart, things that I run to instead of to God, things that I hold that they will save me and give me joy other than God. 
my self-image as a pretty righteous Christian, a good Christian, was uh, challenged and stripped away. And I saw that my sin was worse than I thought it was. It ran deeper than I thought it was. I saw that uh, what God was teaching in the story of Hosea, that I was like Gomer. I wasn't just an adulterer. I was a, I was a serial adulterer. I was addicted to my adultery. I had so many competing loves and affections in my life that competed with God being the center of my heart. And of all these gods in my life, all these idols in my life, only God really loved me. And none of these idols have died for me. And yet my heart longed to give myself away to so many other pursuits. And when the chips were down and my life got difficult, I ran into the arms of these other lovers and not into the arms of God. In Hosea chapter 3, we find that Israel, they idolized raisin cakes. So what on earth? You can idolize a raisin cake? It's just like Americans today idolize hamburgers. You get down and you get depressed and you say to this hamburger, you will lift up my heart with joy. You will take away the sorrow. You will make me feel good about myself and about my life again. We have so many things we run to except to the God who loves us. And I guess at the end of this lesson, I guess at the end of having our hearts exposed, I guess when God says that your sin is worse than you think it is and that you're an adulterer and you run to all these other things other than to me, I guess the question is, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for you? Is there any hope for us when we're more sinful than we ever thought we were? And like Gomer, we can do nothing to save ourselves or to change our own behavior. Is there any hope? So we move to lesson number three, the third and final lesson we learn from this story. The first thing we learn is that our relationship with God is like a marriage. The second thing we learn is that our sin is worse than we think it is. And the third thing that we learn from the book of Hosea is that God's love is greater than our sin. God's love for us is greater than our sin. God's love for you is greater than your adultery. God's love for you is 
more faithful, more strong, more steadfast than all the times that you've been unfaithful to him. And as multiplied as our unfaithfulness is, as deep-rooted as our sin lies, his love for us is more powerful. It is stronger. His love is a pursuing love. And even as we run after our other lovers, his love will pursue us and will find us and will restore us. Turn over to Hosea chapter 3. In Hosea chapter 1, God presents this parable of Hosea marrying an adulterous woman. In Hosea chapter 2, God pours out his heart toward Israel on the basis of this picture, crying out to Israel that you have committed spiritual adultery against me, and yet I will be faithful to you, and one day I will restore you. And then in Hosea chapter 3, God goes back to the flesh and blood picture that he has put before us. And in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. When we last left them in chapter 1, Hosea and Gomer were living together under one roof, even though she had already begun to be unfaithful to him and had borne to him children of harlotry. It appears that by chapter 3, the story has fast-forwarded. Presumably at this point, Gomer has left Hosea. She has left the home and she has gone to run after her other lovers. And maybe at first they have treated her well. Maybe at first they have wined her and dined her. Maybe at first they bought her the modern equivalent of a fur coat and limousine, fancy dinners, nights out on the town. But at some point it becomes evident that these other lovers have turned on her. They have failed to provide for her. Their charm has disappeared and they have become abusive. And they have begun to mistreat her. We don't know all the details of what happened in Gomer's life, but by the time we reach chapter 3, she has hit rock bottom. And the beginning of chapter 3 opens with this shocking scene with Gomer in the public marketplace being sold as a slave to the highest bidder. It's possible that she could have been sold in this way because she had been incurring massive debts that her lovers would not pay. And finally, she reached a point where she could not pay her creditors back. And so in order to minimize their losses, they have decided to sell her into slavery to get at least something back from Gomer. 
But some believe that the scene unfolding before us is a scene of how Gomer had entered into prostitution. And she had come under the influence of a man who sold her to other men. And at some point in this process, she had lost her allure. Men would no longer pay a price for her. And therefore, this man is now selling her into slavery as a final act to make a profit from her life. It's a fitting picture of idolatry. For when we give our hearts to other lovers, they at first seem to treat us well, and then eventually they turn on us and destroy our lives. And yet as we go to this scene, it's as pitiful as it is heart-wrenching. If Gomer's sale was like the sale of other slaves, she would have been stripped naked in public. She would have stood before the eyes of leering men who wanted to examine what they were purchasing. Where are her lovers now? None have come to rescue her. None are there in her moment of need. Although they seem so charming at first, they have all deserted her and she is alone. And if we listen closely, we can hear the auctioneer rattle off the terms of the sale. Two shekels. Two shekels do I hear four. Four shekels. Four shekels do I hear six. Six shekels. Seven shekels. Eight shekels. And at some point in the bidding, Gomer begins to hear a very familiar voice. It's a voice from her past. It's a voice, it seems, from another life, another world. Could it be? Could it really be him? It is the voice of her husband, Hosea. Nine shekels, nine shekels, who will give me ten? Ten shekels, ten shekels, who will give me twelve? It seems that the bidding becomes fierce at one point. They go to fourteen shekels, they go to fifteen shekels, and then the bidding becomes intensified. Fifteen and a homer of barley, fifteen and a homer and a half of barley. Sold to the man for 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley. Gomer looks to see who is the man who has bought her and has purchased her. And it is her husband, Hosea. After a lifetime apart, they are reunited. She is now legally his, and he has every right to do with her as he pleases. And in her heart, she must have felt, why did he buy me? 
Is it so that he can have his revenge? Is it so that he can even put me to death for the things that I have done? Is it so that he can take me home and mistreat me? Why has he bought me? And what will he say when he sees me again after all I've done? And what he says is this, verse 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea says to Gomer, you're mine now. Legally, you're my slave. Legally, I have right over your life and I have right to do with you as I please. Yet he says to Gomer, I haven't bought you so that you could be my slave. Gomer, I bought you because I want you to be my wife. I want you to come back to my home. I want you to live with me. I want to raise our children together. I want to be a family. I want to forgive you, Gomer. I want to wipe away the past. I want to remember your adulteries no more. I want to remember your faithlessness no more. And I want to restore you. And by restoring you, I mean I really want to restore you. Not as a second-class citizen, but as a full-fledged wife, as a member of my household. That's why I bought you. I want you to be my wife. And I want us to be together till death do we part. We say, wow, that's a beautiful story. It's the most beautiful story I've heard all week. Wow, it's almost like a fairy tale. It's not really real, right? It's not really true. People don't really love like that. It doesn't happen in real life. No human husband goes into the marketplace and buys his wife and forgives her for her adultery. God says, you know why I've told you this story? This is what my love is like for you and for all my people. It is exactly like this story. Though you have given your heart away to other idols. Though those idols have turned on you and have destroyed your life. I've entered into the marketplace. I paid the price to buy you from your slavery. And I bought you, not so that you would be my slave, but so that you would be my bride. This is how I love you. This is my faithful love for my people. And as the story ends, the question comes from this passage. Where does God enter into the marketplace of human history? Where is it that God sees us being sold into slavery of sin? 
naked and helpless and wretched and poor, unable to save ourselves? Where is it that God enters into the marketplace and pays the ransom price in order to set us free and bring us to himself? And if you've been with us, you know the answer to that question. The place where God enters into the marketplace of human history is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ, the God-man, shed his blood in our place for our sin, satisfied completely the wrath of God on our behalf, and purchased our souls from our slavery to sin, that we may be eternally His. Jesus came into the marketplace, saw you and saw me in our wretched and miserable condition, and He said, I'll buy you. And the price that I'll pay won't just be 15 shekels and a homer of barley. It will be the price of my own life. I will pay my blood to buy you from your slavery. That you will be eternally mine. James Boyce has written this. For what is the story of Hosea if it is not the story of ourselves? We are Gomer. And God is Hosea. He married us when we were unclean. He knew that we would prove unfaithful again and again. He knew that we would forsake him. Still he loved us and purchased us to himself through Christ's atonement. If Hosea's story cannot be real, then neither is the story of salvation real because that is precisely what Christ has done for us He has purchased us from self to be a bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And he has done this even though he knew in advance that we would often prove faithless. Oftentimes uh, messages end with an exhortation and an encouragement for you to pursue God. I want to end this message with an encouragement to understand that God will pursue you. He will pursue you. He will find you. And you may run from him and maybe even this morning you are running from him. His love will find you. And he will bring you to himself. And for us, as serial adulterers in our hearts, that's our only hope. And that is our only confidence. Is the undying love of God for his people. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and taste of this love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have your life transformed. Let's bow in prayer together.
Father, thank you for pursuing us. When we ran so far from you, thank you for finding us when we had run up after other lovers. Thank you for forgiving us for multiplied faithlessness. Thank you for your love, which is a steadfast love, an eternal love, a passionate love, an intimate love. And thank you, Father, for paying the price of our redemption through slavery. In the blood of your son, Jesus, buying us for yourself, for all of eternity, that we may be your bride. And we taste of this love, not only today, but every day of our lives. May this love come into our hearts and change our hearts and our lives for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.